got a Bible with you? Open up to John chapter 21. I'm excited to let you know that we're going to be wrapping up the Gospel of John today. I was looking back at some of my early sermons and realized we started this Gospel four years ago in September of 2016. And here we are today on October the 4th, and hopefully we'll finish our message today of this incredible book. I hope that you've been blessed and encouraged in your time uh, here and your time to study this incredible gospel, my favorite gospel, the Gospel of John. A lot of people have been asking, uh, what are we going to do next when we finish the Gospel of John today? And uh, I want to let you know that I'm planning to kick off a series next week on the seven churches of Revelation. So we'll get to hear from John as he wrote the book of Revelation. I'm going to do an introduction to that, uh, to that uh, series uh, from Revelation chapter 1. And then we'll take seven weeks in a row and look at the seven churches of Revelation, and then that'll get us close to the end of the year. We'll have maybe a Thanksgiving message or a Christmas message and a, a new year. And then in the new year, the plan at this moment is to kick off the book of Acts. So I hope that you'll uh, hang out with us here as we're having a great time studying God's Word here in the end of John, a series on the seven churches of Revelation, and then kicking off the book of Acts, Lord willing, in the new year. Exciting things ahead for Placerita Bible Church. Well, maybe you're there. John chapter 21, verses 18 to 25. I've titled the message, Follow Me. Follow me, John chapter 21. Let me read 18 through the end of the chapter. We'll pray and dive into our time together. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to Peter. Remember, he just interacted with Peter. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and then Peter had affirmed his love for Jesus three times. And so he says to him, truly, truly, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that, you are, that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We thank you that this is our Father's world. We're grateful that you continue to pursue us in a love relationship through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful to have walked through this gospel over these last four years to see the various truths and interactions that Jesus has had with his own disciples and even with the Pharisees and with his mom and just so many things have happened as we've been studying. It's been so refreshing that we could read these things that are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. And we pray that in this last installment of sermons that we'll look at together as a church this morning in the Gospel of John, that we would be challenged and encouraged more than ever to follow you. Lord, we want to follow you in our lives, and we want to follow you in our death. And we pray that you would open up this text to us in a way that would challenge and encourage us, cause us to worship the risen Savior even more. And I pray it in his name. Amen. By what kind of death will you glorify God? We typically don't like to talk about or even think about how we might die. Sometimes my kids think it's fun to play a game about asking different scenarios of, Dad, would you rather? You know, would you rather die like this or die like that? Dad, would you rather die by drowning or would you rather, rather be burned up in a fire? You know, Dad, would you rather die in a car crash or would you rather die in an airplane crash? You know, Dad, would you rather fall into a pit of vipers or would you rather get eaten by a lion? And I don't know about you, but I don't like that game. I'm just like, you're giving me two bad options. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be forced to make a decision. I am not Indiana Jones, all right? I don't have to worry about that stuff right now. So don't make me give you an answer because it just drives me crazy, right? But, you know, we just don't like to think about how we're going to die. It's not a pleasant thing. The CDC gives the top 10 leading causes for death for those of us who live here in the United States of America. Number one, it's heart disease. Number two, cancer. Number three, accidents. Number four, chronic lower respiratory disease. Number five is stroke. Number six is Alzheimer's disease. Number seven, diabetes. Number eight, influenza and pneumonia. Number nine, kidney disease. Number 10, suicide. You know what didn't make the list? Martyrdom. To be martyred in America is a thought that we don't often have because we live in a country that's given us incredible freedoms that we're grateful for. And if we're not careful, we're going to need to keep fighting for those freedoms in a way that will assure us the opportunity to express our faith and devotion to Jesus, both privately and publicly, forever. And if for some reason those liberties are taken away, we're going to practice that anyway. We're going to love Christ until we die. And a martyr is someone who is killed for their faith. The center for the study of global Christianity in Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary has estimated that 100,000 Christians die for their faith around the world every single year. They've estimated a million Christians have died over the last 10 years. That's 100,000 a year. Now, a lot of those deaths have obviously come at the hands of Islamic militants, so it's not like each one of those is just an individual death. There's a lot of battles and, and a lot of wars going on that contribute such high numbers. But what we're looking at this morning as we study this passage is Jesus telling Peter that that's exactly what's going to happen to him as an individual, that he will come to the point to where at the end of his life, he will die a death that is not a death of his own choosing. And that's exactly what Jesus means when he says, when you are old, verse 18... When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said by what kind of death he was to glorify God. It is a sobering thing to be told by your master and your friend 
that you will die in his service. It was implied, but most likely Peter got the message. And by the time John wrote this gospel, Peter had probably already been killed by the Roman emperor Nero. Jesus had accurately predicted the martyrdom of Peter. Jesus knew what sort of death he would face there at the end of his life. And that much knowledge could have discouraged Peter or it could have also reminded him that come what may, that the Lord is never taken off guard. Just as Jesus had prophesied his own death and his own crucifixion, he's now prophesying Peter's death and Peter's crucifixion as well. And the truth is, it isn't so different from what Jesus predicts for each one of us here today. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or in John 12, 25, he would lose, or he would He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life would keep it for life eternal. Or how about Matthew 16, 24? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, Luke 12, or excuse me, Luke 21, 16 to 17, they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of me. And so my question to you this morning is, By what kind of death will you glorify God? Because we understand that as Christians, we are all going to die unless the Lord comes by. We understand there is life and there is death. You may die of some disease. You may die of an accident. It's possible you could die as a martyr. But no matter how you die, you will have the opportunity to glorify God in your death. Choose to live in such a way that no matter when your death comes or how your death comes, that your death in and of itself would be glorifying to God. And this morning, as we examine the last part of John 21, I'm going to give you three headings about the seriousness and the joy of following Jesus no matter what. Number one, the ultimate sacrifice, verses 18 and 19. That first blank, if you are taking notes, just says martyrdom is always a possibility. Now, for Peter, it was a certainty, but I'm just saying it's always a possibility for any follower of Christ. And Jesus starts off verse 18 saying, truly, truly, he is getting Peter's attention. He's still having that one-on-one with Peter right after he told him that you need to, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. He's continuing to talk to him and he's getting his attention. He uses that solemn phrase, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. And it's always pointing his listener to a noteworthy truth, a truth that we must hear, a truth that Jesus doesn't want his disciples to miss, a truth that will impact their life in a significant way. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, when you were young, you used to walk wherever you wanted. He's saying to Peter that you used to, for the most part, have control over your own actions. If you wanted to go fishing, you could go fishing. If you wanted to follow Christ as a disciple, then you could follow Christ as a disciple. If you wanted to do something, you could just go do something. From a human perspective, you had that freedom. 
But Jesus says that's about to change because there's coming a day when Peter is told that when, when you're older, there's coming that day when you're older, then you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, according to the parentheses of verse 19, we understand that Jesus is talking about his death. This is a reference to what kind of death that Peter would die. And in his old age, Peter would be tied to a cross and his hand stretched out. And church history records that Peter was arrested, that he was bound, and that he was carried off to be crucified. And tradition again says that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome during one of Nero's persecutions in the mid-60s. In fact, the early church historian or church father Eusebius wrote this, quote, Peter seems to have preached in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia and to the Jews of the Diaspersion. And at last, having come to Rome, he was crucified head downward for so himself had asked to suffer, close quote. So you may be able to choose some of the things that you do in your life, but you do not typically choose the way that you die. Most of us will have no say in when we die or in how we die, and the same was true of Peter. And Jesus is saying to him that he chose Peter to be a witness and an apostle and to preach the word, to be one of those pillars of the early church, to be a rock, not himself, but his profession was going to be a rock that Jesus was going to build the church. And we understand that Jesus ordained both the timing and the way, the details around Peter's death. And the truth is, if you are not willing to die for Christ, then you are not truly living for him either. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we understand that as a Christian, you must work this out in your own way as to whether or not you would actually be willing to die for the sake of Christ or not. Now, I'm sure preachers preached that when I was younger, but I don't remember really thinking about it until Columbine High School in 1999 when it was reported that there was a young girl who was asked, do you believe in God? She said yes and was killed. I know there's some different details if you go back and look at that, but that's how it was presented to me. And on that day, I just remember thinking, would I do that? Could I be bold enough to say if somebody held a gun to my head and said, do you believe in Jesus? Would I say yes? Or would I somehow figure out another way to answer the question? Or could I swipe the gun real quick before, you know, and not have to go through it? You know, there's like all these things like, would I really be willing to die for my faith? And I think that's a question that ought to be put before each and every one of us. Because if you're not willing to die for Christ, I'm saying to you this morning, then you're not really living for him. And I know it takes courage. And I know it can be scary. And I know that any one of us in that moment might crack under the pressure but you got to decide right here, right now, am I ready to go with Jesus all the way to death? So that in that moment, on that day, should it come to you, the decision's already made up. 
You've already decided like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, King, we know what you're telling us to do, but it doesn't matter. We've already decided we are not bowing down to you, and we know that somehow God's going to be glorified in this, and somehow he's going to save us through this. You've got to come to that point in your life, and I think part of being a Christian is being willing to follow Christ no matter what. It's Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. It's Romans 14.8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. I'm telling you this morning, at some point in your walk with God, you have to wrestle with that reality that could lead to your death. And so I'm asking you this morning, have you come to that point in your life right here, right now that you would say, you know what, I would go to my grave professing Christ and I would be willing to die for Christ. You got to wrestle through that. And I'm telling you this morning, if Jesus loved you enough to die for you, do you love him enough to die for him? Now, he doesn't need your death, but... If he loved you enough to die for you, would you, do you love him to that degree that you would be willing to die for him? Now, now, there's no guarantee that you will be martyred as a Christian, but dying daily to your sin might even be a greater application, though we understand things are changing and it could be scary about dying for Christ. Uh, for most of us, we're probably not going to be martyred. But you've got to become a martyr every day in the sense that you're willing to die to yourself every single day in order to glorify God as a sold-out Christ follower. Romans 6, 6 through 8 says it this way, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Whenever I'm counseling with people who are still struggling with besetting sins or ongoing habits, oftentimes I'll just tell them, you're just not dead to that yet. You, you got to get to the point to where you are totally dead in your flesh so that you can truly live. The one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so on your own, you may not wish to die. It may not be what God has for you, or it may be. It would be my delight to see Christians raised up from this church in such a way that would be such a loud voice for Christ here in the States and around the world and even in dangerous places in the Middle East that we might get a report that one of our missionaries gave their life for the cause of Christ, and I wouldn't be ashamed. I would be proud of that individual and thankful that they had the guts to go into places that are far more dangerous, and we got to be willing to face that kind of thinking on a daily basis. Now, I want you to notice in verse 19 that both your life and your death glorify God. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. You glorify God in your life, but you also glorify God in your death. And for many people... Death is a scary thing. We've been talking about that according to a 2017 survey of American fears conducted by Chapman University. 20.3% of Americans are afraid or very afraid of dying. 
20.3%, that's one out of five. Americans are afraid, are very afraid of dying. And I'm assuming that that fear of death would be more common with non-believers. A non-believer does not have the hope of heaven, the hope of heaven. A non-believer does not have the promise of salvation or the inheritance of the saints. But that doesn't mean that believers aren't afraid of dying. Believers can be greatly afraid as well, but we can also be greatly encouraged by the truths that we see in God's Word, like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, but we want you to be, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be afraid about those who've already died, those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. When an unbeliever dies, they have no hope. When a believer dies, they have hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the grave, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so he's just reminding us that our death as Christians is an entrance into eternal life. And so we never have to be afraid of death because it's the doorway to heaven. And this passage definitely encourages us that when we fall asleep, that First Thessalonians passage, or when we die that we have the hope of a resurrection, that when we die, we are raised to life and we will always be with the Lord forevermore. One of the first Christian martyrs to die for his faith was Flavius Justinus, who was born in Samaria, near the place where uh, Jesus had talked to the woman at the well in John 4. Justin also thirsted after the truth and he eventually drank from the water of Jesus and Justin had received earlier in his life a classical education in Greek and Latin, but nothing could satisfy his longing heart. And so one day, one day, while he was walking by the sea, Justin met an older man who talked with him about the weaknesses of Plato's thinking, and Justin realized that philosophers cannot arrive at the full spiritual truth through unassisted reason. And so Justin learned that the ancient prophets of Israel who knew the God of the Bible had accurately foretold the coming of Christ. And he was amazed that these prophets were able to get exactly right the prophecies of Jesus coming. And so he was blown away by that divine revelation that was given by God to these prophets. Justin repented and he believed in Jesus and as uh, he believed in Jesus as, as both the Christ and as the Son of God. And as a new convert, Justin continued to teach philosophy, but he now explained that Christianity is the only true philosophy. And he believed that God's word was true. And Justin was known for defending the faith against pagans, against Jews, and against heretics. And Justin taught that Christianity is the ultimate truth and defended Christianity in public debates. And after one such debate, Justin and six of his students were brought before the Roman prefect. And when Justin and his students refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods, then they were condemned, they were scourged, and Justin and his six students were beheaded. Standing as a firm witness to the truth, even in his death, Justin was given the name Martyr. So if you look him up today, his name is Justin Martyr. He's known as one of the very first martyrs who in such a bold way gave defense of the gospel in a way that cost him his life. And what we're learning 
from that and from this whole sermon this morning is that both your life and your death glorify God. Think about it. The martyrs of the faith have oftentimes grabbed our attention even more so than those who died in old age of natural causes. Stephen is the first martyr of the New Testament and is famous for the way he preached the gospel and then was stoned to death. It was John Huss, a famous Bohemian reformer who was burned at the stake in 1415. It was John Rogers who was the first of the English reformers burned at the stake in 1555. No doubt, Jim Elliot, who was speared to death by the Waodani tribesmen in Ecuador in 1956, glorified God more in his death, perhaps, than he had in his life. It's not only how you live, it's how you die. Now, you may die as a martyr, or you might die of natural causes, but the point is, is that you live your life in such a way that when you come to die, those who remember you will remember a life well lived. Jim Elliot said, as you know, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the question for us this morning is, are you prepared to die in the timing and in the way that God has ordained for you? Are you fearful of death or are you confident in Christ who holds your life in his hands? And the only way to truly glorify God in your death is to glorify him in your life. And in order to do that, you've got to, your next blank here says, verse 19, the very end, to follow Jesus is to give him your everything. Again, the end of verse 19, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Following Jesus is the way that the Christian life is to be lived. We don't follow the devil. We don't follow the world. We don't follow other people. We don't even follow our own hearts. We follow Jesus. And Jesus made it very simple when he said in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. True Christians follow Christ. They go where he goes. They do what he calls them to do. They enjoy what Christ enjoys. And the mark of his sheep is that they follow him. That's what Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so the voice of God is heard through his word. You don't hear the voice of God through creation. You don't hear the voice of God through dreams. You don't hear the voice of God through prayer. You hear the voice of God through his word. It's through his word that he has spoken and still speaks today in a way that gives you insight and the ability to stand on the authority of God's word. And God's sheep are known by God, and they follow God's Son, Jesus Christ. And if you've been straying, it's time for you to come back. As a sheep, we all understand how we can stray away. We looked last week at 1 Peter 2.25. We're all straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. So only the good shepherd can bring you back. Jesus is saying, follow me. I need you to get back on course, Peter. I want you to follow me. And only Jesus can bring you back. Secular psychology will not bring you back. 
Medication will not bring you back. AA will not lead you to Jesus. You must learn to celebrate Jesus as the Lord of your life and the overseer of your soul. Jesus is saying, follow me. Come to me, all who are weary. Come follow me. Don't follow anybody else, any other philosophy, anything else this world has to offer. I'm calling you to follow me. Why? Because I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And when you are following Jesus, you are walking in that light. And when you follow Jesus, you must step out of the darkness. And when you see the light of Christ on your soul, when you are cleansed of all the darkness and shame, when your bonds of sin are broken and the light of Jesus shines hope on a brand new day, when you truly are walking in the light, you will never want to go back into the darkness again. You're like, I've been there and I've tasted that and it's ridiculous. And I will not be enslaved to that garbage anymore because Jesus is calling me to follow him. And I'm going to follow him with my life. I'm going to be born again by his grace. And I'm going to walk with him. And I'm going to cling to him. And nothing in this world will take me away. Not the government, not my fears, not my family, not my job, and not that besetting sin. I am here to follow Christ. And that's what Peter's being called to. Jesus is like, come to me, Peter. Stay focused on me. The devil is a liar, and those who work for him will deceive your soul. The world will not satisfy. The culture is falling headlong into sin, and you better jump out while you can. You cannot hide any longer by being on the fence as a Christian in this world. You must choose to follow Christ no matter the cost. And so that's the ultimate sacrifice of what it means to follow me. But the second heading I want to give you this morning is there are still earthly distractions. And in verses 20 to 23, we see in verse 20, 21, that we need to stay focused. Your next blank, stay focused on our calling. Look what happens here to Peter. Verse 20, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who would also lean back on him during the supper, and it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, you would think after all that Peter had been through, after denying Jesus three times, and after being restored to Jesus three times, that Peter's good to go with no more distractions. But he just can't help it. It's just part of His nature is part of our nature, this side of glory. And the problem is, if you look at verse 20, the problem is Peter turned. And that's what always happens. As soon as we turn away from Jesus to something else or to someone else, we can get easily distracted. We need to, as Hebrews 12 says, keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to lay aside every weight. We need to put off every sin. We need to discard every hindrance that clings to us. We need to run our race with endurance, that race that Jesus set before us, not someone else's race not someone else's calling, not someone else's life. You need to run the race that Jesus set in front of you. And only you can run that race that God appointed you to run. God appointed you to reach that person with the love of Christ that only you can reach. God appointed you to endure that trial, that unique 
difficulty that you're facing with a heart of praise and thanks and worship. God assigned you the task of loving that unlovely person. You know the one I'm talking about. That person has been put in your life so that you could love them in a way that would glorify God. You have a race to run and you are not obeying God if you're trying to get off that course, if you're trying to run someone else's race. And when we get off course, we are not looking at Jesus. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. He gave us our faith. He sustains us in our faith. He saved us and he's gonna sanctify us. He set up our race and he is going to give us the strength to run that race. And oftentimes what happens is we do what Peter did. We just turn our eyes. We're locked in with Jesus. He's talking to us. He's encouraging us. He's challenging us. There's good stuff he's saying. There's challenging things that he's saying. He's saying, I love you. He's saying, I want you on my team. I want you to shepherd people. He's saying, you're going to die for it. But he's saying, I want you to follow me. And then Peter turns like this. And he begins to look at those around him. And he looks at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel. And he says, Lord, what about this man? In other words, Peter's saying, so I'm going to die? Well, what about John? You know, Peter might have been thinking uh, uh, the same thing about all the disciples. Like, are we all going to die? Like, we, we got to be careful about the sin of comparison. And you say, Adam, is comparing your life with someone else's really a sin? And my answer would be, it could be. It might be a sin. At the root of comparing your life, your struggle, your trial with that of another person's is the simple thought that life is not fair. And when you start saying, well, life is not fair, that is beginning down the road of a complaining spirit and an ungrateful attitude. To say that life is not fair is to say, I'm not getting what I want or I'm not getting what I deserve. And well, can I just remind you this morning that none of us are getting what we really deserve? That we deserve God's judgment? That we deserve hell? That we don't deserve anything that he gives us? That every good and precious gift that we have, the gift of life and the gift of, our, of, our, of being here in this beautiful setting this morning, the, the, the gift of family, the gift of everything that you have, it's all a gift from God. And yet so, so many times we begin to complain about not getting what we want. And at the heart of comparing your life to someone else can also be the thought of, I'm just not content with what I have. I wish God would give me a different life or a different job or a different physical appearance. I want to remind you this morning that God created you just as you are. You are beautiful. You are handsome. You say, Adam, I don't hear that a whole lot. That sounds like a bunch of self-esteem. Now listen to me. God created you. And Ephesians 2.10 says, you're my workmanship. You're my masterpiece. You're my handiwork. You bear my image. And I created you in a beautiful way to represent me. And God doesn't make any trash. So every human being that you've ever seen is created in the image of God to represent him. And it's our job to bring the gospel to bear in each and every life so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good. And God's called us to be content with where we are. We don't need to be the kind of person who would say, well, what about that guy? In fact, we, we've got to come to the point, your next blank says, trust in God's plan for your life. We've got to trust 
in God's plan for our life, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus is basically saying to Peter, it's none of your business what happens to John. Even if it is my will that he remain until I come. If we will just keep looking to the Lord and keep our minds focused on him, we need to understand that God has the whole world in his hands and that he's appointed for us exactly what he wants us to learn and to know, which is why Jesus is saying, look, it's my will to do what I do with you and it's my will to do what I do with him. You gotta keep your eyes focused right here. You've gotta have your eyes focused on me. You need to know Psalm 16, 15 and six that says, uh, Psalm 16, five and six says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When we just read the scripture about God's got an inheritance for you, he's got every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies for you, he's forgiven you, he loves you, he draws you to himself, he gives you rest. You have to trust the Lord with what he's doing in your life. It's for his glory and for your good. We've got a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 uh, have that mentality to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding in all of our ways acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. And so our job is to just walk in the path that God's laid out for us, to walk in the righteous path instead of the unrighteous path. And it's amazing how many ups and downs that we can go through at times. Remember Peter had just denied Jesus three times and then he had just told him he loved him three times, and he had just been restored and recommissioned to feed his sheep, and then here he is again, sticking his foot right back in his mouth. It's just amazing to me. Like, how, how could he go through that? And then I look at my own life and realize like, oh, that's me. That's what I do. Sometimes I might ask the kids to go clean their room, and sometimes the first question they'll ask to me is like, well, what about them? You know, you told me to go clean my room. Well, what about them? Are they gonna clean their room? You know, or you might be at work, and uh, your boss gives you an assignment, and your first question is, well, what about these other guys? What about these ladies? What, what, what extra work have you given to them? You seem to be dumping it all on me. What about them? You might be a ball player playing ball, and the, the ball coach is like, hey, I want you to run a few laps. And your first question is, well, is the whole team running laps or just me? Like, well, what about them? We always get in that mentality about what else is going on. And Jesus is basically saying to Peter, don't worry about him. You just follow me. You must leave everything to follow Christ. And Jesus said you must be willing to love and to follow Christ even above and beyond your own family. Luke, 6, uh, Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So in other words, if God's calling you, and you're like, yeah, but what about my mom? What about my dad? What about my heritage? What about the fact I was raised in this other setting? What about that? Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter about that. You gotta come follow me and you gotta disregard everything else except me. You cannot love your family over God and you cannot love your money over God either. Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. You cannot serve God and money. Now listen, I know no good Christian will ever say, I've never heard a Christian tell me, 
I really struggle with loving money. Every Christian, they, they don't talk like that. They don't be like, oh, yeah, man, I have a money. I'm a money addict. Money, money, money. I got to have more money. In fact, you know what Christians tell me? I don't care about money. But I want a nicer house, a nicer car, new clothes, go on nice vacations, buy whatever I want to buy, whenever I want to buy it. And I just don't have enough left over after that to give to God's work. Oh, but I don't struggle with money. You know, listen, you, you serve who you serve. And you can't serve both, whatever it is. It could be family, could be money, it could be your own, your own desires for your self-development and for your career to take off. You just have to understand God has called us to follow him. And God's called us to be the aroma of Christ among those who are perishing. And we are to be a fragrance from life to life. And how can we be that? If we're so wrapped up in this physical world that our spiritual vitality is wilting. Well, no wonder Christians aren't drawn to you, uh, or non-Christians, excuse me. No wonder non-Christians are not necessarily drawn to your faith and your life because you look just like them. But when they see you shining in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of a hard day at work, that you have a glow about the love of Christ and the joy of loving Christ and knowing Christ, that's what people, gets people's attention. So Jesus is calling us back to himself this morning to get off the fence, to get out of the boat, and to go back to loving Christ and following him with your whole heart. Notice next, it says here in your outline, be clear about what Jesus teaches in verse 23. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but it is, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So apparently there was a misunderstanding. Maybe even a rumor had started saying that John was not going to die at all. Maybe he was going to walk right into heaven like Enoch. So John clears that up for us here in this verse. And you have to remember that John did not pen or write down the gospel until about 50 years after the ascension of Christ. Most scholars believe that the gospel of John was recorded on a quill to papyrus uh, in around 80 to 90 AD. Okay, so about 50 years later is when he wrote this. And John, when he wrote it, was quickly clarifying that Jesus never said that this disciple would never die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, part of that can mean that John might re remain until Jesus comes back. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us what he meant by what he said. He just said, look, what does it matter? He could stay here forever or he could stay until I come. Some commentators say here that Jesus might have been referring to when Jesus does show up in 95 AD to John on the Isle of Patmos, which interesting enough, we're going to look at that next week in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus does come back and make an appearance to John to pen the, uh, the letter of Revelation. So some say maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. The important thing is that we're learning from this verse is that we're learning exactly what Jesus did say and what he didn't say, and we have a responsibility to get it right. And what was happening is there was some sloppy listening and some sloppy application that started a rumor about, oh, well, Jesus said that John's not even going to die until, until he comes back, or he's never going to die, is what, is what they were thinking. That's why it's so important for us to listen to exactly 
what it is that Jesus does say through his word and then relay only that information. It's like what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I know that you're familiar with that verse, but it is interesting how it says, otherwise you're going to be ashamed of yourself. If you get the truth wrong, you have reason to be shamed. But you have a responsibility to be a workman, to be a yeoman, to get into the Word, to do inductive Bible study, to get some some tools to help you understand the text and its original content, original author to its original audience, so that you don't go out there saying, well, the Bible says this, and Jesus says this, and then you start some rumor that's not even true. We have a responsibility, and it's my job as a pastor to say what Jesus said and nothing else. I can't be sloppy with handling the word of God, or people could be confused about what Jesus said. I mean, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, that we all receive gifts to use to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves in a way that God has strengthened them to serve. The point is, you're speaking for God. When you say the Bible says, then you're speaking for him. And me as a pastor, you as an ambassador, need to make sure that we speak for God and that we are speaking for God and not changing what he said, watering down what he said, afraid of what he said because it doesn't fit with our upbringing or our culture or what's popular. And we begin to make it all fuzzy because somehow we're afraid to just stand on the word and the word alone. And what happens is we get distracted and we began to start potentially rumors like what was going on here. And so I appreciate John when he wrote this letter say, hey, I'm going to tell you exactly what Jesus said because that rumor's not true because here's what the Bible says and don't take anything else uh, but the truth. And that leads us to our final heading here this morning, the authoritative witness, verses 24, 25, their next blank, a true witness stands on true knowledge. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and whom has written these things and who we know that this testimony is true. So John there in verse 24 is referring to himself. We understand John the apostle to be one of the greatest witnesses of Christ that the world has ever known. I mean, you understand John was one of the 12 apostles, but did you know he was also one of the inner three? Remember, it was Peter, James, and John that appeared together with Jesus on at least three significant occasions, one at the raising of Jairus' daughter, two on the Mount of Transfiguration, three in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. These three had closer access to Jesus. And only one of those three made it all the way to the foot of the cross. And that was John himself, who might have been, some say, the closest friend of Jesus on earth. He was the disciple who was so close to Jesus that he could have just leaned back on his chest as they were at the Last Supper. He was the disciple that the other disciple said, hey, John, ask him who it is that's going to betray him. Because if you ask that question, he might answer it. He'll just look at us like we're a bunch of fools. John had an incredible relationship with Jesus. It was John 
who Jesus last appeared to in Revelation that we'll look at next week. And so we got to understand here that this is an incredible thing that it is that John is saying, look, I'm a witness, I'm the disciple who's writing this down, I have this testimony, and it's a true testimony. I mean, think about it again, Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 500 who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, there were 70 who were sent out for a special work, there were 12 appointed apostles, three had that inner three uh, experience with Christ, but only one, only one was there at the foot of the cross, and only one was able to record Jesus' last words in the book of Revelation. Jesus loved John. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the apostle John is so familiar to us because he wrote not only what is this beloved gospel, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. And in the epistles of John, he emphatically defends the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And he assures his leaders that he has seen the Lord. And he has been so close to Jesus that he was able to touch him and to hear him. 1 John 1, 1 says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There were some Gnostics who were saying that basically Jesus was not God in the flesh. And he's like, no, no, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him. We're here to make that revelation known to you because I'm a witness. Just like he's saying in verse 24, I'm bearing witness about these things because I'm the closest person to Jesus on earth. And this testimony that I'm giving to you is true. And when you know the Lord, like John knew the Lord, then you can be an outstanding witness for him. And when you don't know the Lord and you're not sure about what the Lord says through his word, then you become a less clear witness for him. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I just think, man, I want to see Christ. I want to be the close one. I don't want to be one of the 500. I don't want to be one of the 70. I don't want to be one of the 12. I don't even want to be one of the three. I want to be right there listening to Christ through his word every single day. And each of us, you know, it's not a competition. You get what I'm saying. But I want to be right there listening to his voice through his word every single day. Every day he speaks through his word, and then when you have that revelation revealed through the scripture by the Holy Spirit, you're able to go out and be a more powerful witness because you know what is true. You're standing on Christ's words. And that leads us to our last blank here. Jesus did many other things. He did many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John did not record everything that Jesus did. There were many other things, apparently, as we're told in this verse. Remember, John wrote selectively. He didn't write down all the miracles. He only picked seven, and he called them wonders, and he called them signs because he said these seven will point so clear to Jesus that you can't help but to see him as the Son of God. It was John who gave us the seven I am statements. So that Jesus spoke so clearly and John recorded it exactly as he said it in a way that would transform his readers to see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. 
It was John who wrote about the incarnation of the Son of God in John 1, 1 through verse 18. It was John who wrote about the presentation of the Son of God in John 1, 19 through 4, 54. It was John who wrote about the opposition to the Son of God in John 5, 1 through 12, 50. He wrote about the preparation of the disciples in the upper room discourse in John 13, 1 through 17, 26. And then here in the last section of John, the crucifixion and resurrection, John 18, 1 through this verse, 21, 25. It's John who gave us that theme verse, and he says to us in John 20, 30, and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, have my, you may have life in his name. I don't know about you, but I just like reading that and meditating on the, the fact that Jesus did so much. You can read all four Gospels, the Synoptics and John. You can read them over and over and over. And every time you read them, the Holy Spirit turns over a new page. It turns over a new leaf, gives you new revelation from his word about things you've never seen. And Jesus, he just taught so much. And if everything the Lord did were to be written down, the whole world could not be, contain what is written. So obviously people talk about, well, isn't that just a hyperbole? Isn't that just an exaggeration? Which in a literary work, if it's called a hyperbole, is an appropriate tool to make a point. It's not like exaggerating in a bad way, but it's just saying, hey, this is so much we can't even record it. Is it a hyperbole is the question we're asking. And I'm saying, maybe, maybe it's a hyperbole, but maybe it's not. Maybe John is saying this because it's true. We serve an infinite Christ. We serve an all-powerful Christ. We serve Jesus who knows all things and who does all things and who sustains all things by the word of his power. And if the world cannot contain Christ, then neither can all of the books contain him either. He's too big. He's too wonderful. He's too great. He's beyond our wildest imagination. He's more than amazing. Jesus is everything. And he's revealed himself to us through this incredible witness, John, in a way that we could see and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I love how the book ends here with Peter and John interacting, because guess what? That's where the book of Acts kicks off. When we kick off Acts in the new year, you're going to see Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. They continue that friendship that they had ever since they were disciples, and they ran to the tomb together. And they were there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee together at this interaction. And they're going to be serving together at Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts, the early part of the books of Acts. Well, I started off the message this morning asking you, by what kind of death will you glorify God? Like Samson, you may do more for God in your death than you ever did in your life. The death of martyrs had more of an effect on men than the lives that they lived. J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, We may glorify God in death by being ready for it when it comes, by patiently enduring its pains, and by testifying to others of the comfort and the support that we find in the grace of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not prepared to die I want to invite you at the close of the service this morning. We'll have some people over here that would love to pray with you. 
They'd love to encourage you and explain to you how you don't have to be afraid of death. They would love to continue to explain how by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ that you can have eternal life, that you never have to be afraid and you never have to fear death again, and that you could live your life in such a way that you could glorify him in your death. If you're here this morning and you want to repent of your sins and come to Christ, I'm inviting you to come forward after the service as well. If you want prayer this morning, you're struggling with something, you are having a difficult time, or you want to pray for someone else, we want to pray for you. We want to pray together with you. Please come after the service. Let me pray for us now. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning to be encouraged this morning by the truths that Jesus gave to Peter. Thank you for the patience, Lord, that you had with Peter, that even when he got distracted again and they looked at John and said, what about this man? That you were, in a sense, rebuking him, but in a sense, calling him back to say, just follow me. Just follow me, Peter. Love me. Feed my sheep. Do the, do the thing I've called you to do. Walk your race, run, run your race, walk on your course. God, I pray that we could learn from that in principle, that we wouldn't be so easily distracted, but that we would want to follow you. And Lord, there's people here this morning who are not following you. And I pray that you would grab their hearts through your word and that you would get our attention, that we would be focused back on you and that we would not turn away from your voice through your word and began to look at other people and other things and point to them and say, well, what about this and what about that? God, I'm tired of making excuses. And I pray that you would help us as a church long to be in your presence and to follow you with everything that we are. And so as we prepare our heart here to sing a, a couple of verses and prepare for the Lord's table, help us to worship you and to commune with you and to get right with you in a way that we could follow you with a pure heart, with a humble heart that's undivided and focused on your glory, on your name, on your renown. Prepare our hearts as we sing this song to commune with the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.